Happy New Year and blessings to each of you. Sam and I are taking this week off to be with family and friends, and so what we're going to do is replay one of our favorite episodes, which is a conversation with an experienced author and gentleman, Brad Miner. If this show and all that the Catholic Gentleman is doing has been a blessing to you, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash catholicgentleman. Any dollar amount would be greatly appreciated, and we thank you for considering. Without anything else, we hope you enjoy. Today, we are so blessed to be joined with uh, Brad Miner. Uh, he is a Catholic gentleman, but his book, The Complete Gentleman, um, is uh, not exclusive to Catholics, but incredibly written. So Brad Miner is the senior editor of The Catholic Thing, found at thecatholicthing.org, the daily blog of the Faith and Reason Institute. Brad is the author of multiple books, not just this one, but this one that's coming out in its third edition, The Complete Gentleman, The Modern Man's Guide to Chivalry, is available now. He is the former literary editor of The National Review. He lives with his wife, Sydney, and has two sons. Brad, thanks for being with us. It's great to be with you. Wonderful. So we've got um, a lot of questions, a lot of exciting questions, and we know you are not only an expert and what it means to be a gentleman in chivalry, but also in the history of it and how we've gotten to this life that we're in today, right? In this secular society that we're in today. So one of the lines that I've read that you wrote was, no man is born a gentleman. Becoming one is a matter of education and practice. And I'd like to just start there in, uh, in our conversation is, you know, what do we do to educate ourselves and to practice? How important is history uh, when understanding these things? And then we'll go from there. Okay. Well, in fact, The Complete Gentleman, the book, is very much a work of history. Um, because I felt it was important in thinking about the words, gentlemen, and uh, especially, but chivalry as well, and a great many other words are, they resonate with their histories. Yeah. They're rooted in their origins. And mm -hmm. uh, so, for instance, gentlemen always meant two things, historically. Mm -hmm. First, that you were, as I say, to the manner born that you were from the aristocracy. But it also always meant, and you see this in Chaucer, in the Canterbury Tales, yeah. where there's a debate in, in that book about what is a gentleman. And the, the very opinionated wife of Bath, who's one of the characters in that book, it makes it very clear that in her view, and she, I, she's probably re reflecting Chaucer's own view, is that it's more a matter of gentleness, of gentiles was the word she used, mm -hmm. rather than, again, the fact that you were wealthy and or born into an aristocratic family. So as early as the 1300s, the distinction was being made between the man of good birth, so-called, and a man of good manners, of strength, of character. Mm -hmm. And so the book is really an attempt to go back to the year 1100, and in some cases back way before then, I quote one of the Egyptian pharaohs and I, I quote Confucius and, and Lao Tzu and, and a great many other uh, ancient uh, commenters on the idea of the gentleman and of what is chivalrous because in Japan, for instance, Bushido, 
the code of the warrior there, was always not just about fighting. It was also about the way you deported yourself in, mm. in the world. Mm -hmm. So um, what I hope in, in, in reading this book is young men especially, but perhaps all men, and they're the women who care for them. Uh, in fact, just parenthetically, I had a, a dedication in the first edition of the book to, I think it was three or four, maybe half a dozen men who were close friends of mine, number of whom have gone to the Lord by now. <clears throat> but now the new edition is, is dedicated to my four-month-old granddaughter in the hope that she will always know complete gentlemen in her life. But I think if you want to absorb this, you want to learn about what it is to be a gentleman, it's good to go back to the beginning yeah. and see how these ideas evolved over time. Absolutely. And that what you said, interestingly, uh, about the difference between uh, aristocracy being high born, perhaps, and being a man of any birth, any station in life, and those inner qualities of strength and refinement and courtesy and manners. Um, it's very interesting to me. And one of the reasons I was originally, when I began the Catholic gentleman, was drawn to the archetype of the gentleman yeah. was because I see so many exaggerated, cartoonish uh, uh, displays of manhood in our culture. You know, the, yeah. the gym rat and, you know, the, the biker dude and, and, and all these very uh, hyper macho, aggressive, uh, archetypes of manhood that lack that refinement, that focus more on the externals rather than on the internals. Um, so, but it is interesting to me that there is this notion of a certain uh, self-awareness, a certain self-control that goes along with the gentleman. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, where this idea came from of kind of a refinement courtesy, you know, these, these things that are rooted in history, but that are very relevant to us today. Where did they come from? Why isn't everybody just, you know, a biker dude with, with, you know, swinging chains and, you know, uh, trying to swagger around like, um, you know, certainly there's something in men that find that attractive, but also that's not the archetype of the gentleman. So where did this idea come from? It begins, I think, with the idea of chivalry. Mm. And chivalry has a fascinating history. Um, the high concept, as they say in Hollywood, would be that there was a group of women who happened to be centered around the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, in around the 1150s, she died in 1200 at the age of, I think she was 89 or something like that. Um, and, and she's known to people from The Lion in Winter, played by Catherine Hepburn. And um, as she was, I mean, you can't make up a character who has the dynamism and the extraordinary history that she has. Uh, she was the mother, of course, of King John of the Magna Carta. She was the mother of Richard the Lionheart. She was, you know, just an extraordinary person. But it, at the time, more or less of the first crusade. She participated in the second, actually. But mm. all of a sudden, a great many men were gone from Europe. Those who stayed behind were generally the younger brothers of the, the great dukes and lords. And um, 
And these guys were sort of, as you might say, all dressed up with no place to go. Mm-hmm. They, were, they had a kind of, they had had training in knighthood. They knew how to use a sword and how to horse, as they would say. Um, but they needed to be controlled because they were going to be spending now a lot more time around women than had been the case prior. Mm-hmm. So Eleanor and her daughter, Marie of Champagne, put together this series of concepts and they hired people. Uh, one of the more famous is a, a guy called Andreas Capellanus. He was a priest and he wrote some of the early Arthurian romances. Thomas Mallory based a lot of what he wrote on Andreas. And the whole point was to elevate love and courtesy, the right way to treat women with this warrior ethos that was then also emerging. And then, of course, you go forward into the Renaissance period and there began to appear what were called courtesy manuals. Um, the most famous of which was by Baldessari Castiglione, who wrote a book called The Book of the Courtier, um, Libro de Cortegiano. And, um, and he laid down a series of thoughts about how young men should be educated. And again, <clears throat> this is always focused on young men. I say later on in the book that I hope that at some point a woman will come forward to write the, uh, the complete lady, because I think that kind of marriage of a kind of fierce femininity that you saw in Eleanor is the sort of thing that I think a lot of women would respond to. And by the way, I don't know too many women, whatever they, their feminist points of view may be, who really want weak men in their lives. Right. Mm-hmm. And because it has its roots, the idea of the gentleman in chivalry, I, I'm a big believer that chivalry is first and foremost, and therefore the gentleman's life is perhaps not first and foremost, but still should involve um, fighting men. Hmm. Now, fighting doesn't mean, I, I'm a martial artist. I mean, I'm 73 years old now, so I'm not you know, doing what I used to do. My wife made me stop when the last year of my training, I was in the emergency room three times. <laughs> Nothing terribly serious. You but, took three times, but nonetheless, though. Nonetheless, um, you know, you slow down a bit. That's right. Um, <laughs> and I know a lot of men object to the idea that they need to be fit for fighting, but mm. I'm not really talking per se about that kind of combat. I mm. use the example of World War II, where you had code breakers and quartermasters, you know, people who, without whom the guys on the front lines who were fighting would not have been able to do what they were doing, would not have been as well protected. So the key thing is you recognize that there are things worth fighting for and you're willing and able to fight. And then part of that though is, is a part of the problem in our own time, because when we jump ahead pretty far into another area, era when there was a lot of uh, courtesy manuals being written, uh, the 19th century, um, then you come smack up against World War I, which was, mm. from the standpoint of the profession of arms, terribly dispiriting throughout the world. Yeah. And to some extent, the idea of a sword in the man's hand became a matter of great skepticism. Yeah. And I think we're still skeptical about that. Um, a marvelous uh, writer who's a contributor to the Catholic thing, uh, Tania Laframboise, reviewed my book uh, just this week. And, um, and she expressed some 
nervousness about part of the militancy of this book. Hmm. But then she came to understand that I'm not talking about, you know, any kind of random violence. Those biker guys, you know, who are yeah. likely to, to get into a brawl fr from bar to bar as they're driving along on their bikes. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. We are talking about defending the true and the beautiful. And um, so now we're in, a, we're in a situation where I felt, um, and I quote T.S. Eliot's famous phrase about this, this is an act of recovery, the complete yeah. gentleman. And all I want from this book is that people, men especially, should read it and think about it and consider whether there is a better way to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When I affirm that the parts of the book that I've read, um, it's, uh, it's got a lot of uh, substance to it. Uh, you have to chew on, on quite a bit of it, which is, which is really great. Um, I love that because very often we get the self-help books or things like that. And that's not what this book is, right? This book is a really a complete um, um, historical, you know, but again, the, and I, I just vocalize this for our listeners here. It's a great historical analysis, but it's not rabbit holes for no reason. It really always comes back, you know, for that purpose. And you do a great job of not uh, uh, going off on a tangent and then, uh, you know, allowing the the reader to to lose their place in in the in the story arc of, of your book. Um, but kind of going so. I guess I, I'm thinking, so we were building up on that. And then would you say that World War I was the beginning of the deconstruction of, of the gentleman, the ideal of a gentleman? Or, or when did that start uh, that yeah, gets I us think, to modern age? That is what I believe, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, World War I, <clears throat> I a lot of people are familiar with um, Chariots of Fire, marvelous yep. movie, Hugh Hudson's mm -hmm. movie. And it begins with in some cases, veterans, but again, they're upper-class guys. They're going to Cambridge mm -hmm. uh, in England for college, and, and this is after the war. And you see the devastation in the, in the young men who greet them at the station to take their yeah. bags and put them on a carriage. And um, I mean, it, it tore people apart. Mm -hmm. um, it, it wasn't literally that an entire generation of young men was wiped from the face of the earth but a substantial number of young men were. Yeah. And I think, as I say, it, it was dispiriting. So yes, I do think that that was the beginning of, of why the gentleman is to some extent in disrepute. And I begin the book, uh, as, as you know, John, from uh, the point of view of the story of Titanic, yes. which is right about the same time, obviously, mm -hmm. in 1912. Yeah. And I was in a theater watching James Cameron's movie, which is deceptive. It's a very deceptive film because he suggests yeah. all sorts of things about the way the people in third class steerage were treated, which is simply mm. not true. Oh. But it, there's a scene in which the, the actor playing Benjamin Guggenheim, after yeah. whom the Guggenheim Museum in New York is named, mm. he was a great philanthropist, but also, of course, a tremendously wealthy man. He comes up dressed in his evening clothes, with his servant also dressed in, in fine livery. And he says to the steward who says he should be in a life jacket, no, he says, we're dressed in our best and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. And a few rows back where my older son and I were, were sitting, a group of young people began to laugh. It's clear that they found that expression of aplomb, yeah. the mention of the word gentleman to be hilarious. 
risible, as they say. I mean, just, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it's not worth dignifying. So they laughed, but I turned around and looked at them and eventually they got up and left. And an older woman sitting behind me patted me on the shoulder and said, you shamed them. And um, I don't know whether that's true or not. Maybe they'd stayed to watch the beginning that they missed when they came in for the earlier show. It's possible. But in any case, that got me thinking. Why would people think the idea of the gentleman is laughable? And that's what set me tumbling into this book. Wow. Well, and that's that. Sorry. No, go for it, Sam. No, you, you got, always got great questions. Good. So many threads kind of as I'm listening to you coming together. But one of the reasons perhaps that people find the idea of a gentleman uh, laughable is because our culture has such an emphasis on power and privilege um, or even uh, the hint of those things in in a certain refinement or uh, self-possession, if you will, uh, can only be used to harm, to oppress, to uh, hold those individuals who are less than in any way uh, in contempt and and like you were describing in the Titanic movie, uh, make fun of or mock or oppress those in third class, which is very interesting because traditionally uh, this idea of, you know, the aristocratic gentleman, there was also a concept that, and I'm sure there were many, many people throughout history who failed to live up to this, but there was always this concept of, you know, noblesse of liege, you know, like the more, the more privilege you have, the more you have a duty and an obligation to serve. Um, and to put that power, if you will, at the service of others. Um, now, again, we're not talking exclusively about aristocratic, aristocratic gentlemen, wealthy people. We're not talking about that. Um, but if there is a sense in which you have spent a great deal of time developing yourself as a, as a man, and you've gotten to the point where perhaps you are more well-read than someone else, or you're more physically developed than someone else, is there not a responsibility to use that? But why, why does our culture find that in your, in your perspective? Why is that so offensive to our culture? And uh, should that have any bearing on how we comport ourselves? You, you have to be able to embrace these ideals with grace. Baldassare Castiglione, Book of the Courtier, he coined a term, sprezzatura. And that means doing all the things that a gentleman would be trained to do. And it had, it could be falconry and fencing and horseback riding, writing poetry, aiding philosophy among you and your friends but to do it all with grace, with restraint, so that you never were drawing attention to yourself. The complete gentleman, as I visualize him, and, and people should understand, I'm not necessarily talking about myself. This is not an autobiography. There's some autobiographical elements because I found that they were illustrative of the process of learning and, and developing this way. But there is no point in going out about in the world and praising yourself 
or looking to get the praise of others. That will come naturally if, in fact, you have embraced honor and justice and prowess of a particular kind. Um, if you love your family, uh, beginning with love for your wife and your fidelity to her, and then being with your, your children, um, then I think you're, you're going to be able to do all these things, have everything you want, not wealth necessarily, because wealth isn't a part of it really. Uh, it's, it's helpful. Um, people ask me frequently, do I think an atheist can be a gentleman? And I, I, I don't know very many atheists, so I, I, I tend to be very practical in, in that regard. Um, can a Jew be a gentleman? Certainly. Can a Catholic be a gentleman? Certainly. Now, I'm not saying that an atheist can't be a gentleman or even a complete gentleman, just that I think it's harder because an atheist has no real belief in hierarchy, mm -hmm. um, regardless of what his politics are. He, he doesn't have that firm belief that there are things that ought to make you drop to one knee to give thanks. And that is at the heart of what it is to be a gentleman. Mm -hmm. No need to put on a show about it, except when you're in church. We happen to be Catholics, and so we yeah. always kneel when we go into church and when we leave, and at various other times during the Mass. I remember seeing Bill Cosby in, in um, concert back when he was still a, uh, a happy person to talk about. Um, <laughs> this this was in about man. 1968 or 9, and um, his wife is Catholic. Mm -hmm. And um, he was talking about being in a Catholic church and being confused about when to stand and when to sit and when to kneel and, and all of that. But, but the point is, we do embrace that. That is part of what defines us as Catholic men, is a recognition that we are in service to something greater than ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm appreciative of you saying that. And I'm wondering if you could give us some context and maybe how we should respond as men. So one of the things that I've experienced when we're talking to uh, men within the Catholic gentleman circles or men at church or these sort of things is this kind of I, I, I I'm. I'm calm to say, or I, I, you know, I, I dare to say, but a kind of cowardice when it comes to, uh, you know, speaking to others about the truth or speaking to others with, with an authentic masculinity, um, you know, be it they're afraid that they won't have all the answers, right? That they're going to stand up for what is right. And they're afraid they won't have the all the answers. So they avoid those situations. They, um, maybe are afraid that they're going to come off as uncharitable, right? Uh, because they see so many guys, these machismo guys and things like that, that um, maybe, you know, incredibly conservative men online that are happy to, to go through statistics and truth, but really lack charity. And so then again, it, it just kind of inoculates them to, to do nothing. So um, I guess my question is, is, in your expertise, how did we get here and how do how would you respond to those men? Because I know a lot of them are listening and I'd love for you to um, talk about that. And it was just uh, through your uh, conversation right there that brought that to my mind. Well, uh, the, the first thing that, that they could do if they want to be emboldened to speak the truth about things is read St. Paul. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, there was nobody who went forward into a hostile world uh, more than he and always found the courage, uh, despite his failings, as he writes about so eloquently, um, to especially in the book of Romans. Um, but he, he was able to go forth and do what he needed to do. Why? Because he knew the truth. 
because yeah. he had been sent by Christ. Well, as Christian men, we're all sent by Christ. So, I mean, I, I think as our culture has changed, it's become riven to some extent by a certain kind of feminism. Mm. Um, I consider myself a Christian feminist in, in one sense. Um, I certainly don't believe in the oppression of women. Uh, I believe women have to be allowed to make their own choices. Mm. Obviously, in a situation of marriage, that will always be uh, joint decisions about most things. Mm -hmm. um, that and the rise um, against all the odds of a kind of Marxist analytical structure in academia. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know how often Marxism has to fail for people to get the message that it doesn't work, but it, yeah. it, it is this terribly reductionist thing that, that is all about oppression. Yeah. Everyone suddenly is oppressed despite the liberties that they have and the progress that's been made. To be a complete gentleman is not to be a perfect man, but nonetheless, um, all of this has worked to make the simple kinds of conversations that one might have had about even controversial top topics sort of toxic. Yeah. yeah. And and so I think a lot of men tend to retreat from that. That's true. And I must say, of course, we're writers, mm -hmm. so we have a chance to write about things, <laughs> and and that's the best way I have found to express myself. Mm -hmm. um, and when I go to parties in New York City, yeah. uh, sometimes publishing parties, I, I've worked in the publishing business for many years. Um, I've learned to um, negotiate, you might say, carefully. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the debates that come up. Um, and, and I've also, I'm very studied, you might say, in, in my responses. There's no point in picking fights with people. One of my favorite phrases, and it, it pops up in the book, is from Jonathan Swift. Um, I never can remember it exactly, but I'll give you the paraphrase. There's no point in arguing with someone who never argued themselves into a position to begin with. Mm. I mean, so much of what people say now comes to them in sound bites, either from the news programs or from newspapers or from social media especially and you know to to understand these things to get into good conversations and there's nothing better than good conversations with good friends um but to get into that with people whom you're not on the same page with i, I heard a lecture once by a, a physician named justin engelhart from uh, i think it was baylor university at, mm -hmm. at some conference that i attended and he spoke about the emerging problem in the United States of so many of us being moral strangers. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, we go back certainly to the founding generation, and I believe that what they built, tried to build through the Declaration and, and then the Constitution was the gentleman writ large, mm -hmm. restraint, balance, separation of powers. All that is really an expression of the way they saw the world individually. And for generations, we were on the same page, we Americans. Yes, there were always people who didn't like what was going on. And we had a terrible fissure in the 1860s uh, over a, a, a cause that we justly have you know, abandoned, uh, the America's original sin in slavery. And 
I did another book a couple of years back called um, Smear Tactics. Mm. It was about the, the problem of political dialogue in the United States. But one of the things I did towards the end of the book for the reader's benefit is I excerpted in two different places, side by side, political statements, asking the reader to guess what they were. And in fact, and they were basically four paragraphs that looked pretty much the same. And they were from the party platforms of 1956 and 1960, Republican and Democrat. And honestly, except for farm policy and foreign policy to an extent, you could not tell the difference mm. because we had a system that was functioning beautifully, to be sure, not for all people. But we've been working on that so that claims that we hear constantly about systemic racism are, in my view, nonsense. Yeah. That there are racists we know to be true. <laughs> but I don't know where you're going to find racism in the law in the United States of America in 2021. So, but it serves people who want to be angry and who think anger is perhaps the most important defining quality of any person. I don't agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I um, think there's so much that we could follow up on, but there's two main themes that I, I've been kind of reoccurring throughout this conversation that I really want to follow up with. The first one is something that you've mentioned several times already, and that is the relationship between the gentleman and women. Mm -hmm. uh, there is something in which inherent in gentlemanliness that is not e exclusively or 100% defining of gentlemanliness, but as you were describing with uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine and, and some of the earliest uh, definitions of gentlemanliness, there was a sense in which it was very much oriented to how you treat women. Um, and I want to, I want to, talk about feminism for a second, because there's a lot of cries today about toxic masculinity. And on yeah. the one hand, I want to say, well, masculinity isn't toxic. And, you know, being a man is a good thing. And but on the other hand, I recognize that many modern men are toxic. Yeah. <laughs> and so there is a sense in which, while some of it is unjust and exaggerated, there is a sense in which I can empathize with or understand the anger that a lot of women feel towards men because they have been mistreated by men. So on the one hand, can you just explain to us like what is the relationship between a gentleman and a woman? Like what does the relationship have to do with gentlemanliness? I guess is the question. And also what if a man would say, well, I, I try to be a gentleman, but women always just throw it back in my face or treat me like garbage. And so yeah. I'll just put being a gentleman on hold until women raise their quality a little bit uh, because they don't deserve it. Yeah. You know, uh, they're, they're just asking. Well, I, I like to say, Sam, that um, there are great many women today who would be <laughs> perhaps happy if I gave up my place in the lifeboat to them <laughs> as yeah. men did on Titanic. Yeah. but don't want me opening the door for them. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there, there's a certain disconnect here. Look, I, I spend a lot of time in both the chapter on 
again, the three archetypes I talk about are the warrior, the lover, and the monk. In the warrior chapter and in, and in the lover chapter, I, I talk a bit about the relationship between men and women having to do with physical differences. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, we're, the three of us are XY, our yep. wives are XX. That means something. Part of what's behind a certain kind of contemporary feminism that sees men as, well, the phrase toxic masculinity. Um, I, I know that there are toxic men. I, I've known some of them. Yeah. But part of what is being said there is it, you need to understand it, you need to flip it. Masculinity is toxic. Well, no, that, right. that's mm -hmm. not true. It can't be true. Right. Right. God made us this way. Nature has endowed us with this. That's right. I write a lot about women in the military. This is something that has mattered to me a lot mm. since my older son entered West Point uh, back in 2005. And, and he and I talked a great deal about it. There's no, and, and I, I know a lot of people who military guys who've read this book in its previous editions were concerned. They thought I went too far in advocating for women in the military. But uh, I'm a realist, if, if I'm nothing else. Um, and, and that means I know for a fact that we're not putting the feminist genie back in the bottle. Women are in the military. They're at West Point. They're at the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy. They're everywhere in every service. Whether or not they should be in combat, out on the front lines with men in infantry or armor or a number of others, where by and large, that's still not the case. We know that in Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, you know, one of the first women, um, well, one of the first people from my, my son's West Point class, the class of 2009, to be killed in Iraq was a woman. She wasn't per se in a combat unit, but she was just close enough um, to, to have um, had to, to succumb to mortar fire. Um, we need to keep working this through. I saw back in 2000 and 2001 when I was writing the book, the first, the first draft of the book, I, I could see, uh, even before my son went to West Point, I could see what was coming. There, was, there had been some books done about how, in the Gulf War, particularly, the, the sexual differences mattered a great deal in the Navy, because the ships would go, head to the, to the Persian Gulf, and all of a sudden, half a dozen or a dozen women on board turned out to be pregnant. I mean, that's not advancing the mission. And so these things all have to be taken into consideration. I remember some woman... <clears throat> when I mentioned this in a, a call-in radio program, again, back in, in 2004, when the first edition was published, she said, well, don't you realize that, that women who are under those kinds of stresses and, and, and go through all that training, they stop menstruating? And, and you, know, they're, they're, you know, that's amenorrhea. Yeah, it happens to marathoners. It, it happens to other, you know, distance and, and, and uh, uh, some other kinds of athletes. But honestly, that, again, Let's not build military policy on that possibility. So I say about the fundamental thing about men and women, for me, I express through the story of Sir Gwaine and Dame Ragnall. Mm. This is an ancient, ancient story in Western literature. 
King Arthur is riding off through the woods and he comes upon this guy, the Black Knight, and they have a contretemps with swords and the Black Knight wins. And he says, you come back here in a year and you will fight to the death and I will, I will take your life unless you can answer this question. And the, and the question is the same one that Freud liked to ask. What does a woman want? And so Arthur, despondent, goes back to Camelot. For a year, he talks this over with people. And, and you know, nobody can give him a satisfactory answer. And so then he's riding back to meet the Black Knight, being an honorable man. And he sees along the side of the road the ugliest woman he has ever seen in his life. This is Dame Ragnall. So we don't know that yet. And he, she says, you seem despondent, oh, my king. And he explains to her what the situation is. And she says, well, I can answer that question. He says, well, that's wonderful. I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, I want to marry one of the knights of the round table. And Arthur has a moment where he thinks, well, I'm not sure I want to do that to one of my brothers. But he, he, he takes her at her word. And, and the answer is, what a woman wants is to have her own way. Now, that may seem perfectly obvious, but at the time that this was written, it was an astonishing sort of thing to say in, in, in a story that became wildly popular. Arthur goes back, he's very grateful, but he explains to the knights that uh, this is gonna have to happen. And he said, when I tell you she's the ugliest woman you've ever seen, I'm underestimating her. <laughs> Gwen steps forward. So then he, he, um, he, they are married and then they go, go to their chambers after the wedding. And suddenly she's the most beautiful woman on earth. And she says, you have a choice. You can have me this way at night, or you can have me this way during the day. The other time of the day, I'm going to be looking just as awful as I did when you first saw me. And what does he say? You decide. So the dynamic, as far as I'm concerned, between men and women is just that. I say also about friendship that it's a negotiation. So is marriage. It's this constant back and forth of developing what I'm good to do and what she's good to do. We've been married now for 37 years. Um, awesome. And, you know, it, it, it's a marriage. I, when uh, my colleague Robert Royal at the Catholic thing and I were talking about it, he, he called to, to wish us a happy anniversary. He said, how many years has it been? And I said, it's 37 years of wedded war. Mm. And that's, that's just a quip. Yeah. But any married man knows what I'm talking about. I mean, there are times when it isn't, it isn't just sweetness and light. Yeah. I also tell the story in the book of before I was married, years before, um, in, in working in Manhattan at, at a major book publishing company, um, I met a guy through the, uh, the gym that I was a member of, and he said, you know what? My wife has a friend I bet you'd like to meet. And so they had me over for dinner. I arrive after work dressed sort of as I am now, except I was probably wearing a tie. And we sit down and we wait and we wait. And this woman comes an hour late. She comes in in a tracksuit. She plops down across from me, demands that she get scotch on the rocks. 
And then she looks at me and she says, you won't believe what my therapist just told me. And I'm thinking, not only will I perhaps not believe it, but I don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And that was that. And uh, that's the sort of lack of restraint, the improper dynamic between men and women, mm-hmm. the, the unwillingness to accept that we do not establish intimacy at any level, friendship between men or, or romantic relationships between men and women instantly. Mm-hmm. Americans are very much and unfortunately tuned into instant gratification. Yeah. And that is a terrible error. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to respond to just quickly to what you were saying is fascinating to me. But being married has taught me how to be a gentleman because yeah. it's required me to learn that sensitivity to a woman's will that I lacked when I got married. Mm-hmm. I was incredibly insensitive and I could relate all kinds of stories of my male insensitivity to my wife. But the fact is the more, the longer I've been married and I've been married 10 years, um, the more I've realized that my wife has a will. She has a personality. She's, and I know this sounds obvious, but men are dense (laughs) in a sense, like especially young men (laughs) who have no experience with a woman in a close relationship we don't know this. Like we just think, you know, honestly, my mindset was when we first got married was, and and this sounds horrible, but this was how immature I was, was that she's there to serve me. Like Mm. she's there to fulfill my needs, but essentially her needs don't exist. Like she doesn't have any, like (laughs) that. And and the longer I've been married, the more I've realized my wife is a living human being with desires and wishes and goals and dreams and things that she likes and things that she doesn't like. And, and the whole dance of marriage and the whole refinement of becoming a man in marriage is learning to recognize that and learning to give her that freedom as a human person to say, I don't like this. I don't want this. I, and to, as you're saying, negotiate that um, in a sense, because we both have needs, we both have desires, we both have wants. And the whole dance of marriage is finding that balance, but it requires you to grow so much in human sensitivity and emotional awareness and things that men naturally lack. But, you know, you think about an, an ancient knight who was trained from a young boy to be a warrior and he's, you know, with his brothers on the front lines or something like that requires a whole different human dynamic with other men than it does with a woman who is uh, inherently different than a man and has different wants yes. and desires. Yeah. It's training and being a gentleman if you approach marriage in the right way and with the right Well, and I, I think that uh, one of the big problems and that's behind the failure of marriages is the glib assumption that just because you've gone through the right and right. you've been joined together in the presence of witnesses that, well, now you're married yeah. and everything's going to be fine. That's right. Well, that, that's just not the case. I remember when I had a kind of breakthrough. It was about six months after we, we'd been married and we, we were playing golf. Um, my wife is not a golfer. 
So she she held a club in her hands for a couple of holes and then just basically walked along with us for the rest of the, the 18. I was having a terrible day. Wasn't a good golfer to begin with. But mm. I got to 18 and the guy I was playing with and his wife, he says to me, stop taking the driver out of your bag. Use a one iron. So I did. And I smacked a, you know, a ball about 250 yards straight down the fairway. And I turned around and my wife who was wearing a baseball cap, actually a NASA cap pulled down over her, her face. So you could hardly see her eyes was jumping up and down and clapping her hands. And I thought I was going to pass out. I was so happy. And it's those kinds of moments that you never forget. But at that point, I'm not sure I was married yet. Mm. I say we've been married for six months, but boy, that's when it hit me. That's when I realized that not only was she for me, but that I was for her and that wow. nothing, nothing would ever change that. Oh, praise God. That's beautiful. That is. Um, so uh, going full circle here, we talked, I mentioned at the beginning that no one was born a gentleman, like you state in your book. We live in a fatherless uh, society increasingly, you know, more as the years pass on. Um, how would you suggest to men, because you also mentioned that it's by knowledge and practice, right, that we grow as a gentleman. And so I'd love to hear from you some of the ways that we as men can grow in knowledge and practice um, if we didn't have a father figure uh, to guide us, I was very blessed with my father figure. He's an incredible man and, and was a gentleman in his own right. But I'd love to hear from you, um, from my own benefit, as well as our listeners, what are those steps that, that we could be taking or, you know, things that we could start doing today? Well, we, we established early that, that this is not as such a self-help book. Right. It's a book of reflection, of yeah. challenge. Um, in these stories, we have the clue, I think, to the answer to your question. Um, yeah. Disraeli says that to become a hero, you must know heroes. He was thinking in a literary sense, actually. There were other people who have said very similar things. You have to look to the best ideas. You have to push yourself intellectually. Um, I grew up in, a, in an academic family, and um, I felt a somewhat intimidated by uh, particularly my father. And his, um, he was very much a college, he was a college professor, and he was very much the, the kind of ivory tower sort of guy, wonderful man, um, uh, a great dresser, a, you know, a guy who I think instinctively uh, expressed restraint in, in the way he, he, um, he led his life and, and it was part of his frustration with me at the time when I was a teenager um, that I didn't uh, live by restraint. Um, but uh, so the example of, of the best men, which can come to us through literature, both fiction and nonfiction, also sometimes through film, although you kind of got to go back you know, to the 30s and 40s, I think, to see um, expressions of gentlemanliness that were common enough then, not always sincere, but nonetheless, they were models that 
once the seed's planted, yeah, you know, it there is a chance that it will grow. We were talking, uh, I was talking earlier about the atheist and, and the possibility whether he could be a gentleman. I think he can, but part of the reason he can is because whoever he is, he's grown up, if we're talking about an American atheist now, in a Judeo-Christian world. Yeah. So, you know, I don't care what he says about what he believes. There are certain unshakable things that come from natural law, from just what suffuses our culture. And if we need to be worried sure. about anything, it's that we're beginning to lose even that as yeah. the background of the culture we live That's in. That's the truth. So it, I think it's reading, study, but also it's recognizing what the, the key principles are. Yeah. Can you be someone who is willing to sacrifice his life for others? Can you be someone who in certain situations can keep his mouth shut? Can you keep a secret for other people? Um, I can go on, but I—I I mean, yeah. it, it's 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 a it's an interesting question. I don't think that there is per se a manual. God knows there was a, a marvelous book written just a couple of years before Shakespeare was born <clears throat> that scholars speculate he knew very well, called "The Complete Gentleman," spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, same as I spell it. Yeah. I guess I took his title. Mm -hmm. This guy named Henry Peacham, and and Peacham taught you how to which worms to put on your line when you're fishing for which fish, uh, Sure, you know, and, and which books you should read, which plays you could go see, who are the authors that, that deserve distinction, all that sort of thing. And um, all of that is good, but in the end, it is an act of courage because if you're afraid, yeah, either of what's happening in the world of all the demons that are outside, or whether you're surrendering to the demons inside, um, it's gonna be difficult. So learning and courage, I think, are the two keys to moving forward as a gentleman in this life. I love it. And I think it's so important because it's an internal formation uh, or discipline that we have to work on, right? It's not just all external. It's not just how you dress and how you, um, if it were, then, you know, hipsters who are getting, you know, hair plugs to give themselves a bigger beard, uh, you know, would be, it would be on the right path. But, um, but that internal formation doesn't have a one size fits all or a black and white. Um, and, you know, you just, <clears throat> I had a great spiritual director a number of years ago who just always talked about saturating yourself in the brine of the sanctity of the saints. And so, you know, it's just always, he said, you should always have a book, you know, uh, that you read once a week about some life of some saint, so that you're constantly growing in that and learning. And that's what I'm hearing from you is this idea of, uh, and I know you use uh, Sidney Poitier and you use Robert E. Lee as some examples of gentlemen. And, and these are individuals that we can look to, of, of course, not perfect, um, you know, nor was my dad, but to but uh, carried themselves with with this interior disposition of courage this interior disposition of of control and and manliness that that we look to and we we work on within ourselves so uh i think that's excellent yeah i i just yeah. the courage piece being essential to to manhood is so spot on and and um but it's one that that i hadn't really thought of in relationship to being an essential defining characteristic obviously it's important for men but that kind of separation what separates the men from the boys it's really that 
internal disposition of willingness to push yourself beyond that level of comfort uh, into a place of danger and uncertainty uh, for the good. Uh, but I want to respond to that real quick because we did mention the externals. And that yeah. is something a lot of young men who aspire to be gentlemen do think about. And mm -hmm. I will say that I don't think it's inessential. Um, but what does that look like? Because, you know, let's say you live on a cattle ranch in Wyoming um, or, you know, being a gentleman externally. Well, of course, we want to cultivate the internal primarily. But being a gentleman externally is probably going to look quite different than if you live in Manhattan. Sure. So what is essential for gentlemanliness in your external comportment? Because I think a lot of people see the sweatpants, uh, casualness that pervades our culture. You mentioned earlier, like the tracksuit. I mean, you were mentioning a lady, but a lot, plenty of men do that too. Yeah, um, sure. But there's, there is just this casualness that pervades our culture. And a lot of young men who are aspiring to be gentlemen want to transcend that. But what's, what's a good and healthy mean for caring for your externals while not relying solely on that? Well, I think, um, you know, there's that old phrase that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Mm. Um, it certainly was true of that young woman, um, at least with me. Yeah. I, I think it, the way you dress ought to reflect who you are. Mm. Yeah. There needs, first of all, to be honesty. Yeah. If you don't like suits and ties and, and all the rest of it, well, all right, I understand. But for instance, when you go to church, you know, don't go in a tracksuit. Right. You know, I mean, I see things. Yeah. I go to a Catholic church in Bronxville, New York, which is not far from where I live. And that's a very wealthy community. Hmm. Um, and uh, Kennedy's used to live there once upon a time. And um, I'm appalled, uh, particularly now as the weather's changing and it, get, it gets to be summertime. Yeah. I mean, young women come in there. Yeah. And our pastor had to, uh, he sounded like Cotton Mather one, mm -hmm. uh, one Sunday uh, a couple of years ago in the, in the summertime, just trying to make people understand that when you're in the house of God, you've got to show respect. Mm -hmm. Well, respect, that's one of the first things in terms of, a, of the way you comport yourself in the world, the way you look, grooming, dress, all of that. I, I can't prescribe you know, particularly, you know, which clothier you ought to be using or which, you know, I mean, for me, hair cream doesn't matter. And, uh, <laughs> but, but the point is it, it has to arise from the respect you have for yourself that, yeah. because that's really, unless your wife is dressing you inevitably what, what, and I think that's true for some men. Um, why are you putting on what you're putting on? Are you thoughtful about that? Are you thoughtful about the way you speak to others upon first meeting them? Mm -hmm. Do you treat them with a proper respect, which involves, it seems to me, a proper distance? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a lot of people don't like it when I talk about these things yeah. because they just think, well, yeah. I just want to be open and friendly with everybody. Well, mm. I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't agree. Mm -hmm. Friendliness is, is, it's not a terrible characteristic in an individual but it's just something that it, it will come if it's going to come. Mm -hmm. But, but and, and with dress, 
I guess I've said what I need to say about it. I think it, it is always um, something that reflects who you are. Uh, it, I say that, you know, and it's all a part of this Sprezzatura thing, actually, too. Um, when I was young, younger, uh, before I was married, I was making a lot of money. And I started buying suits from one of the bespoke tailors on Savile Row in London. All right. Anderson Shepard. And uh, I mean, man, they were glorious suits. But I remember that the one of the tailors said to me, I don't think it was in the fitting room at, at ANS, but it was, you know, in, in some conversation. Anyway, he said, when you leave, we want people who see you and know you to say, Brad, you look wonderful. Have you lost weight? If they say, woo, look at that suit, we have failed in our task. <laughs> you know, again, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how important restraint and subtlety are, yeah. I think, mm -hmm. in living effectively in this world. I, I don't want to go much further about, you know, the right way to dress or where to buy your shoes or any of the rest of that, because that's just all a matter of individual taste. And just because a guy isn't dressed well, for starters, it could be because he's poor. Yeah. But his poverty does not mean he can't be a gentleman. Right. <clears throat> just as his poverty doesn't mean that he must be a criminal. Yeah. Right. I agree. So um, want to go back to your book here that we've been talking about as it's uh, the third edition is just uh, released. What inspired you to come back and to create a third edition? I know uh, there are things like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, and I think it's important for uh, for men to on this um, podcast that are listening to be aware of that because it is a relevant and current book. But what inspired you to come out with that third edition? Well, I think it's the other now familiar phrase um, that we've been talking about toxic masculinity. Mm. I mean, honestly, I, that, <clears throat> that raises my emotional temperature when I hear that. And, and I think also the, the whole transgender thing, um, I'm especially upset about what's happening so far, mostly at the prep level with, uh, women's athletic competitions where um, boys who suddenly decide that they can't get a top spot on the boys track team will come out and run as a woman. And, and thank God, um, we're talking about boys who haven't had breast implants or vaginoplasty or any of the other amazing things that some men will do when they are of a particular age to try and make them look more like a woman. Um, but of course, they can't be women. Um, that's not possible. As we said before, we're XY, women are XX. God forbid we ever reach a time when science can change us at the chromosomal level. I mean, that is, talk about dystopian science fiction. It's, it's yeah. just horrible. But for society to have as the president, the current president of the United States has, as even the Supreme Court has in the Bostock de decision to have elevated transgenderism to be equal with male and female 
seems to me to be a breakdown in moral order and in the the practice and application of logic in everyday life. Yeah. Um, so that was something that's been very much on my mind. Uh, and um, I, I, most of the revisions I did also began after I found out that my daughter-in-law was pregnant with, with uh, uh, Dorothy Caroline, who has become our first grandchild. And um, I knew I, w I wanted men in her life, men who are thoughtful and compassionate and strong. And um, she has one for a father, I can tell you that. And um, uh, so I think that was, that was it, just the temper of our time. And, and certainly Antifa and BLM and, and the whole Marxist and anarchist quality of all of that. I mean, this, is, this cannot be what our future is because right. there's no future at the end of that, that we, that we don't already know how it turns out. And it turns out very, very badly. It's funny you mentioned those groups specifically because one of the greatest examples of Christian chivalrous masculinity that I've seen was um, in South America. I think it was Argentina, but the, the, there was a huge I know what protest, you're going to say. Yes, of feminists, women that were just angry and hate-filled, and they wanted to destroy a Catholic church. But these Catholic men surrounded the church and they were all holding their hands and linked arms. And these women were spitting on them, throwing things at them, you know, trying to break through the line, trying to humiliate them in any way they could. But the men just stood firm. They weren't lashing back. They weren't like, punching these women nope. out or anything horrible yeah. like that. They were just yeah. standing firm, singing hymns, uh, protecting the good, the true and the beautiful. Um, yeah. They were not responding in kind, they, but they, their masculine strength was put at the service of others. And that may be the kind of masculinity that we need going forward as our society continues to break down, where we defend the good and the true and the beautiful in that masculine way. But that's not aggressive. It's not violent. It's not hateful. Right. But it's, it's strength put at the service of the good. But with all strength and... Um dare I say, violence are sometimes necessary. Yes. Um, it, part of what made the Antifa protests in the Pacific Northwest so disturbing mm -hmm. was the way the public officials in several yes. cities just simply drew back yeah. and then allowed this conversation to go on about not only defunding, but to some extent even talking about eliminating police. Right. Well, I. I you know, you, so, okay, next we'll be eliminate armed forces. Well, that's folly. It's just madness. It and mm -hmm. again, this is where the study of history comes in. Yeah. Because, you know, in any kind of honest appraisal of history will tell you, you know, again, we, we train for war, but we pray for peace. Yeah. And, but not to be prepared, that's, that's unacceptable. Yes. And I also think, by the way, because it's sort of, I'm looking at it off the corner of my eye, um, one good thing that young men could do, uh, uh, teenage boys especially, is read Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, yes. which ends <laughs> my book. Yeah. Um, I'm so grateful that it's out of copyright, so I could just put it in. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and, um, but it, it, is, it is a beautiful thing. The intelligentsia have always despised it. 
yeah. great American critic, and he was a great critic, Edmund Wilson, re referred to it as the Polonius principle, referring mm -hmm. to the character in Hamlet, who's utterly duplicitous, right. and um, mouths these wonderful phrases. And, and by the way, they are, they are wonderful phrases, but Shakespeare was trying to make us understand that this guy was not a gentleman. He was not someone who really believed what he was saying. He just had memorized phrases from someplace and loved to spout them, especially to his son Laertes. Yeah. But, but Edmund Mills Wilson is wrong about this poem by by Kipling because, you know, it is, it it grabs young men all over England through the 19th century and into the 20th. That poem hung on the walls of boys' bedrooms, mm -hmm. and they would memorize it, and it had an effect. You know, you again, you plant these seeds, just as our Lord talked about planting the seeds of faith. Sometimes it falls in rocky ground, but most young men are fertile ground if you can simply put the right seeds in. Amen. Oh, I really appreciate that. So while we're closing here, Brad, where can people go to get your book or books? And where can they go to learn more about you? Where would you like to direct people? Well, there are two, two things to say. One, I think every retailer and, and to say for books that it's pretty much online retailing now yep. not that many bookstores left uh barnes and noble uh some places um but amazon.com has the book uh matter of fact i'll just mention that as of yesterday and this this galls me a little book because we've talked about the the breadth of the subjects yeah. covered in this book but it was number one in their etiquette list well, it's not really a guide to etiquette, but uh, I'll take it. You know, yeah. I mean, when you're an author, you, you're just happy to, to say <laughs> that the right. book's getting some kind of recognition and, 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 right. and selling. Um, and to read what I write on a biweekly basis and to see my editorial input, uh, you would go to thecatholicthing.org. And yeah. just so, to, so folks know, one of the things that our daily columns at the Catholic Thing feature is great art. And... And that's me. Uh, that's yeah. I put that in every day. And because I am a, uh, some people are gym rats. I was a gym rat for many years. I've had some health health issues recently, and so I'm not mm -hmm. in the gym as much. But I am a museum rat for sure. And uh, New York is a great place to live to be able to see oh, some of the great art that's been created over uh, many many centuries. Can I just say I love that because yeah. there's such a caricature on both sides. Uh, of our culture where it's like either you're uh, you know an effeminate aesthete you know yeah. uh, where you just you know like the, the 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 finer things so to speak and you have no physical development whatsoever or you know you're the gym rat the meathead you know that that's uh drinking the protein shakes and and uh going to the gym and his in his cut off t-shirts and getting as right. bulky as you can but you have no use for anything in intellectual or intelligent but you know what I aspire to be, and what you're describing is so beautiful. And that, why not both? Yeah. <laughs> why not? Why not physical development and intellectual and spiritual development? Yeah. Why not? Yep. You know, yep. and, and, and and always, always with goals in mind. Yes. You know, I mean, and and, and the goals shift. Yeah. There was a time when I was thinking, when I when I turned fifty, that maybe I would think about when I got to be 60 competing in powerlifting contests. Wow. Wow. 
And then I got to be 60 and started having some health issues. And mm -hmm. my cardiologist is saying, no, 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 no. And now it's that my wife and I walk between three and five miles every single day, yeah. weather permitting. And I'm, I'm a bit thinner and not as bulky as I once was. I'm not obviously doing martial arts anymore. Yeah. Um, and I think developing that openness that allows you throughout the course of your life to be flexible. Edmund Burke, who, who also was in the first chapter of the book, uh, you know, talking about Marie Antoinette and um, her pending death, talking about he couldn't believe that uh, a nation of cavaliers, in a nation of cavaliers, meaning France, that, that a yeah. 10,000 swords wouldn't have been raised to save her life. Yeah. Um, but I lost my train of thought, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but but the point is made and and you inspire me just in all honesty to be a better man and to be a gentleman and to continue learning and developing throughout my life. It's a project that's never done. Um, well, and thank God for for both of you yeah. doing this with your properly titled marvelous um, podcast and website. I mean, it's it's a it's a great contribution to this this ongoing battle we have to try and bring up the best men. Yes, absolutely. Amen. Oh, thank because you. They're needed now more than ever. That's the truth. That's for sure. That's the truth. Well, thank you, Brad. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your expertise, but also thanks for your wisdom and your, your care and your time uh, to be with us. It's been, it's been appreciative. And um, I just thank all our listeners for, for tuning in. I'll have all everything we stated in the show notes. Um, so uh, look down there for them. So, and as we end every episode with a reminder, be a man, be a saint. Thank you.